Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andre Besser in New York City. Welcome to a new episode of The Ballot Box. So no guests this week, unfortunately, just the, just the three of us. But mm. we, have a, we have an interesting topic to discuss today, which is um, out-of-country voting. We've sort of been inspired by the, um, the presidential election in, in Cape Verde. Regular listeners will know we did an episode about Cape Verde um, earlier in the year and really liked it. Um, we didn't think there was probably enough um, election coverage there as much as we like the country to fill a whole episode. But... Cape Verde has some interesting features with regards to um, diaspora voting. So, as this is a this is this is a fascinating topic about elections, we thought we'd we thought we'd uh, just uh, spend some time um, talking about that. But yeah, for, first of all, how is things with everyone? How's how's New York, Andres? It, it's it's going well. Um, I'm having a good time. Very busy. Um, but I finally had a, a student ask me whether or not I had a podcast because I think that it, it came up some somehow on um, <laughs> the internet search. So if you're listening to me, dear student, welcome, and you know it's great. It's great. It's great that you're listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how are you in uh, how are you in Manchester, Chris? I, I'm good. I'm I'm very much looking forward to my weekend because um, my um, father is um, visiting the country. Uh, as we speak, meeting my um, nephew for the first time. Oh. Um, obviously, because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. he has managed to miss the entire first year of my nephew's life. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but he um, he's now here, and I'm I'm going to pop down at the weekend to see my uh, to my sister and see a whole bunch of family. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, how about you? Yeah, good. Just very very busy. Um... Yeah, it should be nice to um, <laughs> just looking forward to the weekend at the moment. There's a lot of mm-hmm. early mornings commuting down to my university, which is quite a bit out of London. Um, but yeah, no, otherwise all good. Uh, okay. Great. All right. Um, so yeah, um, let's just start off very basically. For those who are not aware, what is out-of-country voting? Um, out-of-country voting is any procedure that allows citizens to vote in a local or national or even actually supranational election um, from outside of the borders of the country where they're from. So basically it's about casting a ballot from outside your own country for an election that's happening there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so not, not too complicated, but obviously not, not every, um, every, every country does it, although it's become increasingly common in, in mm. recent decades. Um, so yeah, why why is this why is this decided to spread around the world? Because we are noticing more and more countries take this up. Um, because I think you two, you both have mentioned in the show notes that there is there's a little bit of a contradiction here um, with this with this idea because those people don't live in the country and yet they're voting on laws which will affect mm. people that live there, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, why is this idea taken off? That's a that's a really good question, and and some research. Um, so to begin with, there's an excellent database where we're gonna take a lot of the kind of worldwide data from. Um, that's that's hosted by and populated by Idea International, which is a wonderful organization, uh, real kind of well of knowledge for everything electoral and 
electoral and, and everything about electoral administration. So on the database about out-of-country voting or, or voting from abroad database, it's called, um, IDEA has, has detected that at least 75% of um, countries and territories in out of the 215 countries and territories that they follow have implemented some degree of out-of-country voting, whether that is for referenda, legislative elections, presidential elections, um, et cetera, right? So only about 25% of countries do not have any provision for any type of out-of-country voting. Um, researchers have, so, so why, is the, why is it the case? So, and also if you look at the numbers of when those laws became activated. So when it was, when the first election in those countries allowed for out-of-country voting, you'll see there's a kind of sharp increase since about 1990s and definitely in the last two decades, it's taken off um, massively. Um, so, so it's on the one hand, um, so it seems to be like a, a, there's, there's what's called norm diffusion that's going on um, or there's copying that's going on or, or innovation or you know, kind of coincidental innovation that's going on in the last few decades. Researchers have, have posited positive kind of different explanations for them. I think a very strong explanation is the, the notion of norm diffusion, whereby um, different political elites in different countries extend rights in the same way because the ideas around what constitutes a democratic government sort of kind of spread. Others have noticed that countries that receive remitt remittances um, and whose GDP has a sizable portion of remittances coming from outside of the country um, tend to tend to um, push forward laws of out of country uh, voting. Others have posited that it's basically a kind of an issue of globalization. And so they take the idea that um, out of country voting has spread across the world since around the time that globalization also started to, to increase. Um, the spread of dual nationality laws has also been kind of seen as a harbinger of, of uh, out-of-country voting. So I, I don't think that there's a single explanation, and I don't think that research researchers have, have uh, tried to find a single, a unique explanation, but they see all of these factors coming into play when it comes to explaining the, the, the rise in, in out-of-country voting. And specifically, the very, the very recent rise um, and spread of of out of country voting across the world. Yeah, and there's there's um, there's a number of ways of doing this as well, right? So, so and just to the degree into which um, countries will allow the out of country voting. So some of them will kind of a, a limited sort of extent. So in minor Chris's country of the UK, um, you can vote mm. for be fifteen years after you leave. The country and yeah, although, just that although, you retain residual rights to vote in your yeah. home constituency, kind of thing. Yeah, though yeah. it should be noted that the government, the government was elected on a manifesto to make that to get rid of the fifteen-year-old rule. So that's something that's mm -hmm. intended to be changed in the future. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um. And and you so all the places. This is the same in the US, right? That you, you just you vote in the kind of last place that you were registered, mm. etc. Um, whereas others fundamentally incorporate it into their physical systems, you get separate electoral districts for those abroad, mm. France, Italy, etc. This is 
um, you get sort of special representation if you're um, if you're kind of in, in um, a, a citizen abroad. Um, so yeah, do, do, is the what's is there any kind of pattern in why the countries kind of choose to do either one of these? What the what are the kind of um, rationales for each of these decisions as well? That is that is a really good question. So I'm going to slightly rephrase that question. The, the question is whether or not like at what level of elections can you participate in if you are residing abroad and and whether yeah whether or not there's some sort of pattern i i think and and in the case of cape verde that i guess we'll talk about in a moment that this is very clear there there i think that there's uh, reasons that have to do with tradition and law and some reasons that have to do like some uh electoral geography that is very clearly the product of strategizing. So for example, um, so, so what's the kind of menu that um, countries have or that um, polities have? One is um, you let voters vote based on their last last place, last uh, electoral district where they were registered or mm -hmm. the one that they were born in. Um, so some sort of like connection between the local circumscription in their home country um, that then they, they can contribute to. The other kind of large sort of option is to create circumscriptions or electoral districts that are specific to out-of-country residents. And so this latter, um, this, this latter option seems to be, this is more of a hypothesis than something I've actually, I haven't kind of, I, I haven't, seen a study that has kind of reached this conclusion robustly, but it seems to be a strategic way of limiting the power of out-of-country voters. Because mm. if you say, you know, all of these people can only vote for these two or three seats in a parliament or can only vote for, um, you know, this elected official and, and, and their votes aren't pooled into um, the rest of the, the, the rest of the, of, of their fellow countrymen's uh, votes, you will dilute their power. And so the case of, of Cape Verde is very clear because over about as many people, as many Cape Verdeans live outside of the country than they do within the island territory. Mm. But they only get six seats out of 72. Yeah. So yeah. that avoids them deciding the election, quote unquote, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th there is, I think, probably a, a question in there that's kind of, to some extent, valid of like to what extent should a residence vote count versus versus an expats because of course it, you know it, to some extent there's a a question here around like to what extent expatriates are affected for example by the consequences of electoral of democratic decision making so therefore kind of what role they should have in in, in choosing um who to some extent there's an interesting argument there I think there's also, to some extent, also been cases of expatriate circumstances used for essentially electoral advantage to some extent, or intended electoral advantage, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. Um, yeah, parties thinking that expats will go one direction or another, and therefore trying to kind of make them uh, create representation in a way that they think will favour them. Yeah, and then the choice is um, 
the second choice is also how these people living abroad vote in these elections. Mm. Uh, so there's a number of um, a number of kind of options here. So um, in terms of like using consulates as polling mm. places, um, voting by post, these kind of things. Um, so yeah, um, where what, why don't you take us through a few of a few of these um, different modalities and, and kind of what the again what's the rationale behind each one? Yeah, so um, so the different sort of options are um, setting up uh, a ballot box outside of the uh, outside of the country's territory. So in usually like diplomatic representations or consulates, sometimes um, they'll a they'll ask. Sometimes countries will ask like um, citizen volunteers to set up uh, ballot boxes in in maybe well-known um, kind of community centers of the diaspora. Then, and that 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 mimics um, regular elections, the closest, I guess. Then there's snail mail, so voting by post, which is also very popular. Then there's voting by proxy, which basically allows an out-of-country citizen to empower someone in their country of origin to vote in their name or mm -hmm. well to vote for them so they you know through their um, electoral registration and finally there's e-voting which is basically voting via an application on the computer or on a cell phone interestingly the idea um, database um, shows that about the most popular option or the most not popular, um, but the, the most widespread option for voting abroad is in person and about 50% of um, jurisdictions across the world mm. that, that, uh, uh, of the countries allow for in-person out-of-country voting. Then postal, which is about 25%. Then by proxy, which is around 9.7%. And I think it's gonna surprise our listeners to hear that e-voting is actually not very popular, despite the fact that it's the cheapest and probably mm. the easiest way to get um, votes from citizens from abroad, only about 6% um, of the countries and territories researched by IDEA International allow for, for out-of-country e-voting. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that the driver of these sort of, so there's obviously, we could kind of set these options up as a gradient, as a scale of what is, how it's easiest to participate versus how it's hardest to participate. And I think snail mail, like regular postal mail, is probably the hardest form. It, it's the form that sets up the most amount of barriers to turnout for out-of-country voting. Voting. That's partially because um, postal services are they're, they're 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 becoming less well used. They're becoming less used across the world, and we see like the rise of private courier services, etc. And fewer and fewer people um, write letters, right? So it's it's not as common. Um, yeah, and 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 of course, international post can be very slow as well. Um, so um, one problem in the UK is that postal votes have to be returned before election day in, in this country. So if you're postal voting from abroad, it might take three, possibly even four weeks for the for the uh, ballots to reach your local polling station, you essentially have to vote for quite early on in the campaign um, and, and put it in the post straight away, where so it, it won't reach the country. Like it, I've heard of stories of ballots dropping at electoral offices like two weeks after the election results were counted. So 
um, that, that's clearly a, an issue as well as opposed to voting systems. Yeah, absolutely. It's an it's it's an organizational kind of um, nightmare. Actually, I I, I was I, I was lucky enough to have worked on out of country voting in Mexico um, mm -hmm. on the administrative side of things, and postal voting implies huge costs not only for citizens in terms of their time and logistics, etc., but also on the on the part of um, the administrative body organizing the election. Mm -hmm. um, but there is the I think one of the, so. One of the factors that uh, policymakers take into account is the ease uh, is the ease with which people will be able to vote from abroad. But I think mm. the main factor contributing to decision making is the idea of voting security or voting electoral integrity. And so, electronic voting is not very popular um, because it's it's not very popular around the world in general because it's thought to be less safe or thought mm. to have the appearance of less safety. So even though there can be very secure ways of e-voting, that, that's a different um, realm than convincing people and political actors that it's safe and then being able to prove that it's safe, um, mm. which, is, which is a quagmire you know, in a way. Yeah, I, I think one issue is where I think one issue as well that um, probably goes on top of that too is my favorite consulate voting is that it can be easy to administer. You may not need to register new voters. So, um, for example, if you're doing postal voting or e-voting, you're always going to need to um, have some kind of registration system where people are essentially declaring that they're out of country and that therefore they um, need a, to, uh, access to a ballot out of country. Whereas, for example, my partner um, frequently votes at consulates in um, the UK because she's a Romanian citizen and um, vote, still votes in Romanian elections, but she just turns up with her um, Romanian ID or her passport and that is considered enough to say that to vote because clearly she's not in radio because she's got her passport. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, there's, there's no voter registration system required. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good. That's a an additional kind of um, step with out of country voting that that oftentimes makes it difficult for that that, that makes it difficult for citizens, which is the the registration process. Um, you uh, different countries do it differently, but um, it's related to the security of the election as well, which is you, you you require as an electoral authority to know who's going to vote from abroad usually to, or to have some sort of proof that the person who's voting is indeed a national of that country. So yeah, as you said, um, doing it in a consulate obviously can, can decrease that um, bureaucratic burden. Yeah. Okay, all right. Should we start discussing some um, examples now? So. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. So, who? I mean, um, I guess I could start. Given that that, um, yeah, uh -huh. a, a, th this conversation was kind of started because we had looked at the Cabo Verdean election. It was, there was a vote for the for the president who who does you know it's a parliamentary system doesn't have that much power. Um, so. But we were interested. I mean, the, it, there's an interesting dynamic going on in Cabo in Cape Verde, which is 
the fact that, um, as I mentioned, there, it's got a huge diaspora and the country really depends or it, it really benefits from, from remittances from abroad. Mm -hmm. So since independence, since the its, it's independent constitution in 1991, it gave um, its out-of-country residents it's out of, yeah, it's out of country residents, the, the capacity to vote, the legal, it, it, the legal entitlement to, to vote. But interestingly, in Cape Verde, you need to prove some sort of belonging to the country. So it's not enough to be a national of the country. So it's not enough to be a Cape Verdean passport, passport holder. You must also prove some form, some form of attachment to the country. And in, and in fact, um, the, the electoral law that, um, that kind of interpreted the notion of belonging as having to prove one of the following things, either that you emigrated from Cape Verde um, at the most five years prior to the date of the beginning of voter registration, so that basically you've only been abroad for five years, or that you've been providing for a child or children under the age of 18 mm -hmm. or who is handicapped or a spouse or older relative who habitually resides in the national territory at the date of the beginning of voter registration. So basically that you are a provider for a family who is dependent on you um, even though you live abroad, right? And so so yeah. that, that, that works even if you've been away from the country for more than five years or that you are serving in a state mission or public service um, or finally, that you've been a resident abroad for more than five years, but you've vis visited Cape Verde in the past three. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a, this is a peculiarity of Cape Verde. I, I don't I don't know of other countries that have kind of very clearly laid out these kind of um, notions of belonging or continual mm. continuous attachment to the polity in order to activate the capacity to vote abroad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of countries. I remember, I remember um, in a previous life um, having a conversation with um, some Malaysian political active activists because the government there was intending to introduce a a a, a bill for um, expatriate voting that basically set was like a five year limit, but. Um, also, I think required you to have visited the country within a kind of time span that was smaller than that. Um, so, yeah, and that's obviously also it's clearly trying to get a similar thing, which is the notion of um, some kind of attachment to the country that isn't isn't just you know. In some cases, in particularly in some more controversial regimes, it might be the case that. Um, countries are worried about, for example, expatriates being um, disloyal to the country in some way. <laughs> um, so, um, and there might also be a kind of element, and there's a, it comes down to that kind of question once again, of um, kind of to some extent, who's the demos? Um, who, is, who, who are the people? Like, are, is it more important that countries act on behalf of citizens, wherever they are? Or on behalf of residents, um, which is, I, you know, the, it's a thorny question, which I mm -hmm. think doesn't have a doesn't have an easy answer because it, people who are expats can be affected by a country's decision making in all sorts of ways. 
like um if you're for example if you're for example residing elsewhere in europe in lots of countries you can be still drawing benefit there's certain benefits from the country that you come from um you can still um you can also be affected in terms of you might be just in the country as a seasonal worker for instance and just intended to go back very quickly as soon or you know, in, in, intended to go back, or you might still have family, or you know, multiple ways in which you can still be affected by a country's decision making. But at the same time, perhaps not as directly as a resident would be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a, mm. there are some, yeah, interesting <laughs> questions around uh, around that. Um, I'm ph- yeah. philosoph- I'm philosophically favourable to uh, country voting. Mm. You can kind of see why some people might object in certain mm. ways. Yeah, and there's a guy, I think mm. this is what's uh, at work in Cape Verde, is this desire that it, as a country with an extremely large diaspora, that the diasporic votes do not um, do not overly influence the political process in the country itself. Um, and, and it's often, I mean, we, you would at first mm. glance think that countries which do have like famous diasporas would be, oh, this is where we would set up these out of country voting. But I mean, often the opposite, because if you do have a really large diaspora, then you do get this risk that they become um, very powerful in national elections. Um, which is often cited mm. as one of the reasons. So we have a country like Ireland, which is, is a famous, um, very famous for having lots of emigration, really big diaspora, and yet does not allow out-of-country yeah. voting um, pretty much at all. Um, although it's now being kind of debated about whether presidential elections should be open to diaspora population. But this is a situation where, yeah, the number of people that could be enfranchised yeah. by this yeah. would be absolutely huge, and including people just over the border um, that are living yeah. who could be. Um, eligible to vote in yeah. these elections. Yeah, Ireland's a really fascinating example because not only is the diaspora huge, the country has such an intimate relationship with its diaspora. Um, so like the, it, Dublin is the only capital I've ever been to which has a museum of emigration, um, which is telling in, in and of itself. But yeah, the, the, it's so huge. And, and as well, like it's important to remember with Ireland as well, that Ireland has a really liberal citizenship law where essentially it's essentially anyone who's got an Irish grandparent can become Irish. So um, they, they, that citizenship connection can be maintained for people who really have not be, lived in Ireland in their lives, let alone like um, it, not let alone at some point in the past. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, but yeah, this so this has been yeah periodically raised in Ireland all the time. Um, mm. Say that there is now proposals that the the presidential elections should be allowed, but yeah, but nothing for the the parliamentary elections should involve um, diaspora um, at this point. Mm. And so, uh, oh. um, yeah. so another yeah another country I believe you want to discuss with a, a huge um, proportionally large diaspora. Andres is the Dominican Republic. No, yeah, um, the Dominican Republic has also allowed for out-of-country voting for for a long time, since the 90s, actually. It was one of the pioneers. And um, it allows for in-person voting. And it's been really, it's it's usually flagged as one of the most successful cases of um, voter turnout because of out-of-country voter turnout. Because 
while other countries struggle to find enough people to turn out, the Dominican Republic has reached at the peak of out-of-country voting, it reached up to 60% of registered voters, voters who were registered abroad, and has since um, managed around 40% for, for presidential and vice presidential elections. Um, it helps, though, in the case of the Dominican Republic, that so many are concentrated in the United States, and specifically in, in New York City, although also in, in Florida and in Miami and in other cities in, in the United States. But it seems to be in, in New York City, the, um, Dominican immigrants are also highly concentrated in basically, I mean, obviously there are Dominican um, people throughout the city, but there's one neighborhood, neighborhood called Washington Heights, where there's a really large proportion of the total Dominican diaspora. So, um, I mean, there's about 600,000 Dominicans who registered to vote from abroad compared to 7.5 million of the total um, voters in, in of the country. So I think the Dominican Republic is a kind of interesting case. How do you get people to vote? Well, one thing is um, you involve parties because parties have been active in the Dominican Republic and they're allowed to campaign outside of the Dominican Republic which is different from other, and, and, and also campaigning works out because the diaspora is highly concentrated in a few locations. While diasporas that are kind of like spread out, um, distributed widely over several countries or over several cities in the same country, make campaigning very difficult because um, parties are unsure where they should, how they should invest, you know, uh, relatively scarce campaign funds. Yeah. So, yeah. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, go ahead, Andres. No, I was going to say a good contrast to this is Mexico, where mm -hmm. the where electoral regulations have allowed for out-of-country voting for a really long time, but they've never allowed for campaigning outside of the outside mm -hmm. of Mexico to take place. Um, so that has created difficulty. It's created a, a sense that voters of the Mexican diaspora are, they're given a right, but then that right isn't fully activated um, because they don't actually get into the kind of, the things that, that should make people wanna vote, right? Which is basically the contrast of ideas, uh, different presentation of candidates, alternative futures for mm -hmm. the country that are presented through electoral campaigns. But campaigning is strictly, pro, like it's strictly forbidden to campaign outside of Mexico. Um, even though out-of-country voters can vote. So that's a bit of a paradox. Um, and the reason, Yeah, the, the reason is, is they, that the Mexican constitution and the constitutional setup is very, um, is, 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 it's all set up to ensure that money doesn't have undue influence on voters. And so it'd be very difficult to audit campaign expenses that happen outside of Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. And there'd be an issue with jurisdiction. So the Mexican Mexican legislators have basically just said, okay, let's just forbid that because it's too hard to to audit and to know what exactly is going on. Out, but, out of uh, curiosity, does that apply to, for example, social media campaigning? Because social media campaigning is something, of course, that you can launch within the country um, uh, and aim it at expat voters. It would count. It would count, but it would be very hard to detect. 
So if con- if mm. parties and candidates were paying um, social media campaigns inside Mexico, um, I don't think that I, it'd be very difficult to tell whether or not they're being directed towards um, mm. yeah. citizens who live abroad. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah I ask because um, social media campaigning in, by a relatively new far right party our um, was quite significant in the last Romanian election. And um, so Al got um, 9% of the vote within the country, um, but it won about 23% of expat voters um, because they ran this kind of, they actually kind of set themselves up as kind of the party of expats, kind of clearly aiming at a kind of quite uneducated working class um, group of seasonal workers um, with kind of concerns related to um, things like COVID and kind of like the the way that the country relates to this diaspora, uh, diaspora which was a really interesting event. But yeah, the fact that it ran through social media is I think a kind of really interesting detail. Albeit they did set up some, um, some wings outside the country as well. So for example, actually the the first, um, the first wing of our outside the country was actually based in the Midlands in the UK. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting, if slightly disconcerting um, <laughs> result. <laughs> um. Yeah, um, another. Oh yeah, there's another um, a kind of interesting case of this. Um, Overseas campaigning would be, I think, uh, the one that springs to mind is that for the Turkish uh, 2017 constitutional referendum, which ended up causing a major international incident um, with the Netherlands um, mm. when Turkish officials tried to campaign in the Netherlands, which um, uh, was was they were refused permission for this, um, and this ended up sparking a major diplomatic incident between the two countries. Although I believe I'm not sure of the situation now, but at the time, this was also illegal in under Turkish law um, as well for this to happen. Although obviously it's not a country <laughs> nowadays where the rule of law means too much. But yeah, no, Tur- Turkey is another of these countries that does allow um, uh, overseas voting as well. And obviously many countries in Europe have large populations of, of Turkish citizens. And yeah, this is this is one where the, this kind of international voting gets really fascinating because if we look within Europe, the uh, electoral results depending on the country often tend to be very different um, from each other. So Turkish mm. citizens living in Germany end up often very conservative and tend to vote for the, the ruling party. Whereas in, in the UK, we tend to have um, the Turkish population, which is much more left-leaning um, and will vote for the CHP or the HDP, um, something. So yeah, mm. it, it, it does expose um, very definitely um, what kinds of people um, emigrate to what kinds of countries um, very mm. often when we look at these kind of uh, election results, obviously it's made remarks historically, um, many Turks ended up in Germany through um, kind of guest worker programs in the, mm. in the 60s, whereas uh, the very different reasons why um, Turks migrated to the UK. Um, so you end up with, with very different kind of demographically voting populations in those places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and how about Italy? I, I also saw that you wrote mm. um, a note about Italian 
um, out of country campaigning. It was really interesting. Yeah, this is a really fascinating one because I don't know of anywhere else, and I may be wrong, but this is the only place I know of which has political parties which are solely based in diaspora. The two parties which have representation in the Italian parliament. Um, the South American Union Italian Immigrants and the Associative Movement of Italians Abroad, which are both largely South America based, um, but they both have won seats mm-hmm. in their kind of diaspora constituencies in the Italian Parliament. Um, I have been involved in, um, I think any of, I think either of them have taken up cabinet positions, but have involved in kind of government support arrangements um, and things like that. I've been reasonably active as, as well yeah. in, in the Italian Parliament. Uh, which is a, is a very interesting little feature. Yeah, uh, it, uh, I mean, just briefly as well, um, Italy's also an interesting one because it's a country that you can point to where expatriate voters have actually decided an election. Um, in, 2000, in 2006, um, there were these two huge coalitions that formed in Italian politics, um, the Union on the left and Silvio Berlusconi's House of Freedoms. And... Um, and uh, the left won a majority in the um, lower chamber, but in Italy you need um, to have a majority in both chambers to have confidence, and um, so they needed to win both. Um, and they lost um, on the domestic side of things in the Senate, but they were saved by the expatriate voters because the expatriate mm-hmm. vote and ended up with a majority of two. Um, which was not enough to survive very for the entire parliamentary term, particularly because it's Italy. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's a that was a interestingly sh- and a sharp kind of result. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things would have been very different if um, they hadn't got that expatriate vote. Yeah, and and I mean one of the issues with. Um, out-of-country voting, or an additional issue, is that parties tend to have, um, they don't have a great idea of how out-of-country voters are going to vote, I think, because mm. um, surveys are are usually scant. Um, so there, there, mm. there's always this kind of potential for for surprise. I mean, there always is in elections, but I think with out-of-country yeah, voters, yeah. there's this especially the case. Yeah, I mean, some countries you can... Um make a guess or make a very good guess so for example um romania to return to very briefly um you can predict how results will go in one dimension which is every time there's not uh, every time out of country voting happens it goes very badly for the social democratic party because the social democratic party's base is public sector workers and the retired both of whom don't tend to emigrate so, for example, in the last election, um, the party got about twenty percent, about twenty-five percent of the vote inside the country. Out of the country, it got about three percent of the vote, like a tiny proportion of the population. Um, but then you also get situations where people are kind of essentially guessing. So, um, France, um, France has now got um, single-member circumscription districts which are, are, are crazy in a way, because for example, I right now am sat in, um, I think it's the third um, overseas district of France, which covers UK, Ireland, um, the Baltic states and the Nordic countries. Um, Andreas will be sat in the one that covers 
the United States and Canada. And they were formed in part because it was thought that they would favour the right, um, which I and but because because of turnout reasons, essentially, the left actually ended up winning the majority of them. The first election that they used, and then um, Macron's on March won the majority of them in the second time they were used. Um, so that's a kind of clear attempt of basically gerrymandering using circumstances that kind of <laughs> went wrong. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I do. I mean, so so Cape Verde to return to that example also has three mm. constituencies. One is Africa, so diaspora. Mm. The diaspora who lives in Africa. The other is the Americas, and the other is Europe and everywhere else. Um, and each of those constituencies gets two seats. Mm. But that's. I mean, it's still a very. Um, it's not a very fine grained attempt to divide up the world. France yeah. seems to do something that's much more, um, yeah. yeah, it's much more detailed, right? So, so yeah, Europe, there's Europe a, has several constituencies. Yeah, there, there's 11 districts covering the world. So you obviously, obviously they try to link that to some extent to, um, to the geography of where French people are in the world. Um, so for example, I think South America is covered by one um, district. Whereas Europe has several, but yeah, broadly speaking, it's uh, clearly the case that um, yeah, there's there's you could, there's a little bit more room for toying with it. But I think the main thing there was really that they just expected that um, that out of country voters would favour the right because of their class and educators, um, which did not work out. <laughs> um, but yeah. We, we could go, go on and on with really interesting examples. Um, mm. I would want to hear about um, Reluca's um, trials and tribulations yeah. when mm. it comes to building, because I think yes. that that's yeah. really Story. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Romania has a tendency to put almost some kind of controversy with out-of-country voting with almost every election that happens. Um, so, um, but yeah, the... 2014 election is particularly the notorious and one that I that my partner Reluca um, experienced very directly as well. So um, as I mentioned before, the Social Democratic Party typically does very well, badly with out of country voters in Romania and predictably out of badly, predictably badly. Um, so um, in 2014, you had a presidential election where the two main candidates were the Prime Minister, Victor Ponta, who was of the Social Democratic Party, and um, Klaus Johannes, who was backed by the um, centre-right um, opposition. Um, so um, Reluca um, went along to vote in Kensington, as she um, always did when we lived in London. And um, we arrived there together and um, things seemed to be going very slowly. Um, and um, eventually it became clear that the queue was not moving at all, really. And, um, uh, and what ended up happening was Beluka queued for 12 hours for the first round and didn't get to vote. 
um, because what had happened was that the Foreign Office had supplied too few um, voting stamps so that um, you, you you could not uh, so that they could not move the queue very quickly at all. Um, this turned into a huge scandal in Romania. Um, the it's unclear, obviously, to this day whether this is deliberate or not. I mean, the country was going through big austerity measures; it may have been incompetent. But what was clear was that the government gave any sign of giving a damn. Um, to be quite frank, so, um, so like, for example, one of their reactions was they appointed a new foreign office minister to replace the old one. But it, it was, if you knew who the foreign minister was, it was very clear that this was someone they were intending to fire like two weeks, <laughs> two weeks or now. It's not someone that you keep around for very long. Um, so they, um, so, um, so yeah they really gave a kind of every sense of not really caring so the second round Veluca got there quite early in the day um she um ended up queuing for six hours and got to cast her vote for um Johannes um but what was really interesting was what happened in in Romania domestically which was that um Romania, like a lot of countries, has electoral rule that basically says you can't do campaigning on election day and you can't talk about policy on election day. Um, basically, to make election day kind of free of um, too, too much, uh, too much. Um, so, if you're doing that, the only thing that news stations can report on is how voting is going. So, um, but. But uh, but for Romanian news stations, the most interesting element of that very quickly became the fact that people were queuing for hours on end throughout the world. Um, uh, um, and this clearly started to get people's wrinkles up. And you can tell this because essentially turnout within Romania suddenly started to creep upwards and creep upwards quite starkly. Um, so that in the end, turnout reached 64%, which sounds low and is relative to a lot of countries, but that was the highest turnout that there had been in the Romanian election since the um, 1990s, um, just after the transition to communism. It's, not, it's a very low turnout country. Um, and, what, and the turnout rises were particularly acute in areas which, favor the op which were favouring the opposition. Um, so um, Johannes ended up winning, um, which was a real shock because all the polls beforehand had had Ponta leading and not even leading particularly closely. Um, he, he so uh, we basically ended up going from polls that were saying Ponta wins by about ten percent to Johannes wins by ten percent, <laughs> um, which. Yeah, was a, a was a shock, <laughs> um, but I think it's an interesting story in that it's a reminder of the linkages between diaspora and resident voters, that um, people within the country clearly saw the problems that diaspora voters were happening and felt um, angry about it, and so were moved to vote against the government. Um, on election day. And you can literally see, for example, in data sources that we have, 
that Ponta was essentially winning the election in the morning and by the afternoon he was losing it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a really, um, really interesting story then. And Veluka likes to talk about it a lot because she views that election to some extent as her personal victory um, over the over the Social Democratic Party. Um, but yes, it's um, yeah, it's a really, really interesting, uh, if unique, story about how expat voters change and change the course of an election. Um, yeah, I'm I'm reminded by um, this notion by Hirschman, uh, an economist, who thought that um, kind of. Eastern Germany had been particularly stable compared to the rest of Eastern Europe, so it never developed like a protest movement, etc. Because there had been so much emigration, right? And so, mm. to the extent that people who leave the country cannot participate in the country, that favors kind of incumbents, right? So, if you give the vote to um, emigrate population, this kind of line of theory suggests you're actually going against. Um, the incumbents usually you're going mm. against like the, the traditional parties because the people who've left the country are usually they usually leave and they're discontented with um the, the you know current um situation yeah. economic or political yeah. in the country yeah 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 and it's sort of like a, a big question in all of this is ultimately who are the expats so like so for example um Romania Romania is once again a very interesting country in this because um, because a lot of the people who vote as expats are people from the kind of more educated end of Romanian society. So, for example, it's the um, new anti-corruption party, which is typically favoured by the intelligentsia, which currently does the best out of expatriate voting. Um, which is also, as you kind of slightly hint there, is also quite an anti-establishment party. Mm. So, um, I think we have so much more information on the on the show notes, and I, I I feel like the episode could could just um we could just speak for hours about this. But mm. um, maybe one last I don't know if, if you guys agree, but like one last topic to touch upon is is something that we already kind of mentioned, and that's the fact that um uh, out of country voting turns tends to have very low voter turnout right so in the mm. case of Romania this is obviously strategic right but mm. I and and there are several ways in which the strategic nature of barriers towards turnout um happen and why they're set up and how to prove that that's the case but sometimes it's not only because of strategic action right um mm. By mm. by by incumbents, um, I don't know what yeah. do you guys think. Like, how how is out of country voting for for like UK expats, for example? Oh, it's very annoying. <laughs> so, um, I actually some years ago went and did a little work on um, expat voting stats in the UK, and found that at the time, I think they've gone up since there was a shockingly tiny number of expatriate voters even registered. It's like, it's like in the tens of thousands. Um, and and that is presumably, that was presumably at that time because you could only, for example, register by post. 
so you had to um so you had to do a whole big um thing of like posting off a, a registration form to then get sent a postal vote send it back and then of course within all that you probably online you can now register online which is helpful but um the fact that it's a postal voting system i think is still stymieing participation quite a long way i would i would like us to move to some form of um consulate voting essentially that be it that would be more complex in other countries because we um example have an um id card system you need to register but yeah uh so yeah i think that's a major barrier to participation mm. to be honest yeah um and i think consulate voting as well is ultimately not as easy as voting in a country because i mean like i mentioned reluca voting in kensington kensington were you know even though we're in london kensington was still about an hour away from where we live where of course um if she was voting in a uk election the polling station was like literally on our street um so you know it, the barriers are going to be high like most countries are only going to have like a a small number of um expat voting booths in them um yeah mm. ultimately you know you can probably have one in you know for example in the uk you might have one in london one in manchester one in like scotland one in edinburgh or in scotland but like that still creates a huge amount of space that like people have to cross mm. to cast a ballot yeah mm -mm. yeah i think it's also mm. just it's probably normal just that people are not as engaged if you're not living in the country mm. you're not watching the news all the time you don't have the politics going on around you kind of thing i mean yeah just there'll be less people that um will be kind of engaged with what's going on and will think about going out and vote yeah and we we did yeah and we discussed campaigning earlier as well and mm. of course um of course if you look at the literature on campaigns in political science basically the big thing it indicates is that um campaigning increases voter turnout if you're contacted by a party you're much more likely to vote mm. um because the moment you're contacted by because it's a very it's a reminder to vote so if you're out of the country and parties can't access you like what does that do to your um mm. ability or willingness to um turn out you, it's much easier to forget that an election is even happening um mm. then you know if like you're having leaflets come through your door there's rallies happening um in your town center mm -hmm. yeah okay. yeah and and um just a, a shout out to uh, one of the kind of a, a recent paper that's done a great job of of kind of trying to show that there's strategic um disenfranchisement mm. um from from elizabeth um Eames Wellman this paper was mm. highlighted to me it was you know I was um alerted to the fact that this paper existed by a wonderful researcher called Victoria Finn and and this paper um has actually coded the how how sub-saharan african countries have enfranchised diasporic voters and also tracks whether whether um sub-saharan african countries have made it harder to vote or not and whether or not um, there's diaspora support or opposition mm. to the incumbent party when that happens. And she finds, um, Wellman finds um, 
pretty robust statistical, a pretty robust statistical relationship between the at least the notion that the diaspora is against the incumbent and a hardening, um, and a, a hardening of a kind of the procedure to to vote from abroad. So that's a, that's interesting. A great, great paper. Yeah, really wonderful paper. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. On top of that, I think it's probably far rarer, but I think there's probably also examples of strategic enfranchisement as well. Um, like, so some of that is going to be like fairly obvious. For example, um, you know, some kind of, the French example is one. It, um, briefly returning to Romania as well, um, the former president Basescu. Um, restored, as he put it, citizenship to a very large number of people from the Republic of Moldova, um, because the P Republic of Moldova is seen by Romanians as kind of a, a lost part of the country. Um, uh, and, um, and so that created hundreds of thousands of voters who owed their right to, for example, European citizenship to him. Um, and you could then see from then on that the um, that votes cast in Moldova um, overwhelmingly favoured his party and him. Um, so that that is a uh, so yeah. There's certainly there's a multiple there's more numerous strategic ways in which you can try and use expatriate voting to try and um, benefit one party or another, albeit. Um, I think within that, it's worth remembering that expat voters are, a rel are probably in most countries going to be a relatively small number of overall votes, and so probably can't move the election massively. You can, in most countries, you probably couldn't fix an election entirely on expatriate voting. Okay, should we um, leave it there then for expatriate voting, which I think has been yeah. a really interesting discussion, and as you say, we could go on for a lot longer if we want to just keep listing examples okay um all right well please do rate and subscribe wherever you are listening and we'll see you next week for um, a breakdown of the japanese election which some know is one that we're all looking forward to okay goodbye everyone bye